Welcome to another episode of Red Skies, where we seek to read the cultural signs of our times in conversation with thought leaders from around the globe. Our goal is to find a path for our future as the church, asking the question, how can we as followers of Jesus be good news to an ever chaotic and divisive world? This podcast is brought to you by Movement Leaders Collective, a community and catalyst for movement leaders worldwide, and 100 Movements Publishing, seeking to change the conversation, shift paradigms, equip leaders, and inspire missional discipleship, and is produced and presented in partnership with our friends at Missio Alliance, a generative, expansive, and intercultural network around theology and practice. You can find out more about the book, Red Skies, 10 Essential Conversations About Our Future as the Church, as well as other tools available to help your church, organization, or movement at redskiesfuture.com. The book can also be purchased on Amazon, at Barnes & Noble, and other platforms where books are sold. You can enter the missional conversation with other movement leaders around the globe at movementleaderscollective.com. And now for this week's episode. Hey, welcome to another Red Skies Conversation. I am one of your co-hosts, Roland Smith, coming from Colorado, and um, I'm here with Rich Robinson, my other co-host, hailing from Edinburgh, Scotland, but you're British. You're, you're a Brit in Scotland. I am born and bred, born and bred in England. Now live in Scotland, so doing doing well, Roland. The the Scottish vacation schools are out in two weeks, so I'm looking forward to. We're on the final leg, final leg of uh, the academic year, but really excited for this conversation with Tyler today. Looking forward to it. Fantastic, fantastic. We're really glad to be here with um, our guest Tyler Kleeberger this morning. Uh, Tyler is a pastor at the farmhouse in rural Northwest Ohio, where he lives with his family. He is the host of the podcast, Becoming Human, and co-host of the Bible Archives. Tyler writes and creates content on theology, ecology, philosophy, and psychology, and his work can be found at tylerkleeberger.com. Tyler, it's great to have you on, and um, you and I have shared, like, I don't know, several, several emails, um, but we've never, like, officially met picture to picture we're on zoom so not face to face but picture to picture right yeah and neither one of us have as beautiful as an accent as rich so that's true (laughs) that's that's not the only reason you're on rich don't worry you know (laughs) it's not just for your accent our token brit i love it yeah. I've, got, I've, got a fa- I've got a face for podcasts yeah. and, and a voice to match. We're all good. <laughs> well, hey, Tyler, I, I think most of our listeners know what Red Skies, um, you know, what the what the book is about and what it's uh, talking about. You were kind of given the task because uh, you you live in this wheelhouse of what what we term eco theology in the church. Mm-hmm. We often talk about it that way. Um, and you delivered a beautiful chapter, uh, just a great chapter on how the church should look at creation and our role in that. And so could we just start with like a, um, you know, 40,000 foot view of why this chapter is important to be in this book, in this conversation of what the future of the church should look like? Yeah, it- when you talk about just ecology in, in general, 
you have this issue because it's such a political topic now. Um, and it, but it doesn't have the kind of force that some other political topics have. You, you're not hearing about it with marches or anything like that. Um, but as soon as you bring up one side or the other when it comes to ecology, you've elicited that you're a part of some kind of camp. And, and that's almost unfortunate because one of the things that I, I think about with ecology, one of the lines um, that I that I used in, in this book, in, in full disclosure, I am um, partly agrarian, so I, I do come from that background. Uh, Wendell Berry is a bit of a hero of mine. Um, but once you've squandered the gift of creation, it's it's gone. And uh, so we're talking about something that we're utterly dependent on. The, mm -hmm. the earth has to exist in order for us to live. Uh, and yet we've made it into this political issue. Uh, you know, which side are you going to take? And, and uh, I, I look at that, that is unfortunate. Um, and at the same time, I, I live in a, a rural area in the United States. And rural areas in the United States are kind of uh, posed as these very red conservative fundamental places and and i'm not trying to say that's not true um at the same time these are folks who understand the necessity of ecology really well um so i've found a place where we've been able to transcend the political divide of this and and see it in action quite a bit uh, but that all comes down to you know whatever i'm not trying to say this is the most important topic but whatever topic you want to talk about, whatever conversation you want to have, if the world does not exist, then none of those conversations matter. And so this has got to be something that we get right, uh, that we at least engage in healthily. Um, and when it comes to eco-theology, I think that we come from a tradition where this is part of it. Yeah, I, I don't know that you can pick up a single book in the Bible and not see some kind of eco-theology within it. Uh, so the church should be taking this very seriously, and not just because there's an issue right now. And, and, and I think that's worth pointing out. The, the reason to practice eco-theology well isn't just because the world's going to hell. It's we should be doing this because it's the right thing to do anyway. And churches should, you would like to think that churches would be uh, the ones that the world's coming to us now and asking our advice because we've been thinking about this for millennia mm -hmm. and they're not. Um, and very rarely do I see uh, churches having this conversation, you know, maybe around earth day, somebody will give a sermon about ecology in some way. Um, or, you know, they'll look at the first couple chapters of Genesis and talk about the earth is good or mm -hmm. something like that. And, and I, I uh, try not to be too critical I tend to do that when it comes to the church a lot, which is why I really like this book, <laughs> Red Skies, uh, because there are seriously all of these issues and uh, the church is, I don't know if it's fair to say, but on its way out if it's not careful. Yeah. Um, so the world should be kind of asking our advice on these things and we should be really concerned about this. And, and yet, you know, if you go to... Uh, uh, like a church planting seminar or uh, some kind of workshop, very rarely are we talking about eco-theology as a necessity in churches. If anything, it's a, it's a nice idea. Maybe it's a cool hip ministry 
but it's not an essential part of our life together. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of where I come from uh, with this topic from that big 40,000 foot view. Um, and I guess for me, it's been a lot of, I am in a, a an area of the world, but specifically an area of the United States where the church is dying uh, pretty heavily. Um, and I'm in a rural community where things like food um, and, and ecology in general are kind of right in front of our face. And so I've been able to uh, experience the church in a way where I'm interacting with these things all the time anyway. So that's kind of the the disposition um, I bring to it. Uh, yeah, I don't know how much how much more yeah, you want that's me to great. say about that. That's good, Tana. And and in the first first few pages of your chapter, it, just the sense of inter interaction, interdependence, entitlement. So reading some of the different things you said humans at least theologically are not depicted as as being separate from the world but intrinsically Mm. part of it Mm. the biblical proposal is that nothing lives in isolation another one the environment then is not separate landscape of raw materials to reduce to parts for our desirable use the world in the world shalom you will find your shalom there's so much there where we've separated off and it's individualism it's consumerism it's self-help and you're painting a different picture of this interaction, intertwined, interdependence, humanity, creation, environment. So just talk to us about how you see that interdependence and entanglement and why so often we are now in a place where we're we're separate and we're just using resources or we're just doing what we want or lording it over rather than rather than serving and interacting. Yeah, the the phrase that I'll use a lot is ecological entanglement, and that was kind of the big thrust of um, the the chapter itself. And I think this is just this is just the story that you get if you start in Genesis and you move on. It, it's constantly presented in this way. So so that main thrust actually comes from Jeremiah, uh, which is a relatively popular um, uh, text or passage uh, that that. The way that I, I eventually frame it is in the world shalom, you'll find your shalom. And, and this is written to people in exile. And uh, there's a lot more going on than just ecological entanglement in, in that passage. But it presents the idea that if these exiles are going to survive uh, in, in Babylon, well, they're going to need to see each other thriving of the place that they are if they're going to experience thriving too. Um, but again, this is this is the narrative, I think. If, if you look at the prophet Isaiah, there's this constant pattern where, where Isaiah will talk about Israel's renewal and restoration, and then include other peoples, including Israel's enemies. And then always Isaiah throws in the cosmos somehow, the physical world, material world, almost as if like, it's either all of it or it's nothing. You, mm-hmm. you, you can't pick here. It, it's got to be the whole thing. And, and I even bring up in, in one of the sections how a a good view, in my opinion, a good view of salvation also functions by that same standard, that God is either going to restore the whole thing or nothing. And so if if we want to, you know, metaphysically have this picture of the character of God being good, uh, this all comes, uh, Gregory of Nyssa is a famous theologian who talks about this, 
that the, the culmination of creation has to involve God restoring every single part of it. So if we're going to take all those pictures and, and this disposition that I think is very biblical, we have to start asking how we do that now. And as you brought up, our world is almost designed not to do it. Um, and you think about this in terms of food. If you were to get somebody from 120 years ago and, and say, explain your food economy to me. And then you tried to explain our current food economy to them. It would be utterly incomprehensible. Um, and I think it was Michael Pollan uh, talks about how our food system has changed more in the last hundred years than the previous 20,000, um, which just sociologically, we, we can see that. Um, we have, we have this disposition and I, and I, I'm sitting here looking at an incredibly expensive computer in a very comfortable home with microphones and all of this. Uh, I am not going to sit here and pretend like I wish I could go back 500 years ago and, and live in that time period. Mm -hmm. Our, our luxury and, and our convenience and our technology, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. But uh, this is something that I didn't get into this in the chapter at all, but Emil Durkheim um, is, is kind of famous for pointing out at what expense. So we have all of this amazing stuff. Life is incredibly comfortable. No, nobody in history has, has been able to see what we've seen, but at what expense? Um, and you don't have to look very far, like just walk through your home right now. And you can start seeing ways of, of disconnection occurring where we might be living in a way that's actually ex at the expense of the very thing we're dependent on. And so sociologically, philosophically, I think these are important things. But then if you want to go and as a Christian, uh, you ought to be using the same kind of standard to direct the kind of life that we're living. And if you think about churches, I don't. I don't want to venture too far into the uh, criticism of technology in churches, but walk into a church, and I bet you, I can't speak for every church, but most of them, you are very. It's very unlikely that you're going to find a church that is completely sustainable, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, we we do the same things just as much as anybody else, and so. Uh, I think Christians are just as com complicit in the demise of creation as any other group. And at some point we have to ask like, okay, so what does a Christian economy look like? What does a, a, a Christian ecology look like? Mm -hmm. I don't think it looks like anything we're currently doing right now. And in a way we might be in our own kind of exile where we're creating a world that isn't reflective of, of the intentions of God. And so I, th I think this eventually moves to, okay, so what's the invitation? Yeah. I think the church has to do some repentance here. So where do we go? And what, what are the small steps that we can take? Um, and, and just full disclosure to, to rid myself of any pretentiousness, I'm just as guilty as anybody else when it comes to this. So, yeah. well, I mean, I, yeah. And I definitely want to, I want us to get to a conversation around like what, what are, what are the steps we can take? Like what, what is our mm -hmm. positive way forward? Um, I'm, I'm 
always, I have been fascinated with this separation of our um, voiced theology in the church and um, the lack of entanglement with creation for some time. And from a, from a couple of, from a couple of different vantage points, one, I came into ministry as a worship leader. And so we always, I mean, there are always songs that have lyrics about creation and, you know, how God, how big God is and how big creation is. And there's all this entanglement of creation and theology and music and stuff that we sing yet politically, it's a like you said, it's a very, very divided kind of a bioptic conversation. And then, and then when I started teaching a class at Fuller, biblical theology of mission, mm. um, I picked it. I picked up the class from one of my mentors, uh, who I took it from, and he, one of the required readings was uh, a primer on ecotheology from Celia Dean Drummond, and it never failed that like three fourths of the class would ask questions like, why are we reading this? Wow. And, and we're studying biblical theology of mission and we're reading a primer on eco theology and they don't understand why that book is in the required reading. And so it really speaks to kind of the culture and the ethos that we've developed in what even training for ministry um, looks like. Um, what, you know, do you have some historical context that you could share with us um, or maybe just opinionated thought too about how we've gotten here? I mean, why is there such a divide, um, not, not just the political, but, you know, in church itself and the theological, why is there such a divide uh, between the theology we talk about and the theology we don't talk about, which is creation. Well, and I wonder too, if this isn't that different than, than most issues, you know, we talk about loving your enemies and you don't have to poke around on social media too long to figure out how we're doing with that. Um, You know, so I think there's a, just a general issue with uh, the ethics we discuss and the ethics we enact and, I don't know that that will ever change. Um, and, and one of the things I push when I do talk about this with ecology is you are not going to fix this all at once. We're not going to solve the general human problem of failure. But if we can acknowledge what is wrong and start looking to take steps, then, then we have a chance. Um, when it comes to ecology in general, I do think that the agrarian tr- tradition articulates this really well. Um, and not to turn this into a a political thing, but if we were to talk about these ideas, uh, at least academically, capitalism is a huge part of it. Um, And not only capitalism as an economic force, but as a cultural force of of what it did to the perception of human beings and um, sort of the the 19th century liberalism of the individual, which Rich, you you were bringing that up. And it became it became a destination to be able to live freely on your own and be independent of anything else you know that's the ultimate mark of arrival in our culture i think um 
And so it's either cool to have a garden, um, you know, or, or it feels good to use a compostable cup. Um, but it's not, it's not an ethic in and of itself. Does, does that difference make sense? Yeah, it does. Do you, so do you think, because I notice, um, I, I mean, here's an example. I, we used to own a coffee shop, um, fairly recently in the last few years. And I did notice that younger generations are more aware of that. And so it seemed like a compostable cup was an ethical decision or it is Hmm. to my kids, to a lot of them, Christian or not. Sure. Whereas to maybe older Christians, you know, it was just the business decision to do it or something. Yeah. Yeah, And that, that's a whole, (laughs) that's a whole other part of this is um, it's good PR to use this language now. Right. You know, and and again, this is where I look, you know, I, I am also a staunch supporter of uh, rural communities and um, the Michael Beck and I are coming out with a book in, I think, in August, it's releasing about rural churches. And, oh, and so I, yeah. this is a huge part of my life and rural communities, I think, do this better than, than most. And I'm not saying all people in every rural community, but in general, they have their their feet firmly on the ground where they are. And so keeping things like animals, uh, doing gardening as a way to actually sustain um, your, your eating, like these are just things that these folks do. And I think part of that is because they've had some distance from uh, the economic influences that have come over the past 100 to 200 years. They're still set apart a little bit from that. Um, unfortunately, I also see companies come into rural areas and play to that really heavily just to make profit, which is just the same thing with different language, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think at the center of this, and, the, and this is where it, it, it's not necessarily an ecology issue. The center of this is the individual and how does the individual belong amongst other individuals amongst places and then amongst creation and that's that's a problem that we as humans seem to have right now um and like i said loving your enemies that's part of our ethic as well we don't do well with that um okay what about taking care of the earth Uh, yeah it's in and it's all the same concept of you are entangled with this other thing so you might want to live likewise um we have a world where we can choose not to very easily. And I think we choose it every day. Um, I myself choose it absolutely every day. Um, so where do we start moving with this? And, and uh, Rich, you had brought up amongst like people around me, they know that I'll never use the word environment. Um, it's, it's become a, a part of my identity with, with some folks to the point that it's a joke now. Um, but I, I think that's part of it too, is, um, I bring up kind of the, the nomenclature and etymology of the word environment, uh, and, and how it became common. And part of that was, uh, in, in sort of the secularism, uh, of that 19th, 20th century time period of not using the religious language of creation. And I get it. I understand why. Uh, the church doesn't have great rapport during that time period. Um, but environment is 
inherently something separate from us. And so even today we talk about like saving the environment or, or, or looking out for the environment and our language has even allowed us to see it as something separate from us. Mm. So, you know, I think all of those things come down to the, the essence of the individual, uh, really ironically, Christianity is all about dying to the individualness of a person. So you, yeah. I, you know, you just think we would do better with this kind of stuff. <laughs> and I'm not trying to say that we're doing poorly, um, but I don't think it, it carries the credence it deserves, which is why like, I was really glad to see this being included in, in a book that's trying to tackle all of these subjects, you know, it, I think it deserves to be in that conversation. And and what, what struck me, Tyler, and you, you've just come to it, is that the metanoia moment, the real light bulb challenge for me was in the, the third component of the, the eco-theology ingredient. So the mm. creation requires ongoing care. And just the, the challenge for me was in the entire in the sort of entanglement, I'm trying to dominate rather than serve mm. i'm trying to be independent rather than interdependent and ultimately i'm separating myself rather than leaning in and, and seeing this interdependence as something beautiful and so i i would love you just for those that haven't read the chapter you've got four key ingredients and so yeah. i'm just mentioning some within three so you've got an inherent givenness to the world You've got God made all of creation and called it all good. You've mm -hmm. got creation requires ongoing care, which for me, that paragraph was the kind of gulp moment for me to then go back and read it again. Oh, and then, wow. and then the, fi the final piece, all of creation's being restored. And so mm -hmm. just give us that sort of frame for somebody who's listening in going, this is great, this is challenging, this is new. Just map for the listener those four key components so they can sort of see the picture and then come into the conversation yeah so because it's one thing to go oh ecological entanglement sounds really good and yep. like we've been hashing here it christianity is really good with good sounding things um so what do we where does this come from how does this work so part of my background too is in um philosophy and and for me all of these things are biblical um, you can find these theologically. They also make philosophical sense. Um, so I've I've unpacked these just purely from the philosophical angle elsewhere, um, and and I do think that's important, especially for the witness of Christianity. Um, we're not just making up good sounding things. This actually makes sense within the world as we know it. Um, but they the, all of those four ingredients also go in order too, in my mind. Um, you have to start with gift. So there's a givenness to the world. Um, and I think the really important thing here that may be uh, the most loudest part of this is that you are not the source of life. And so when you can see that your life is a gift, what this does is it, is it automatically levels the playing field. Because if you are a recipient of the gift of life, so is that blade of grass. So is that that creature. So is that person that you hate. Um, and one of the things we'll we'll often do um, at the church that I'm at, we'll do a loving kindness meditation. 
um, I'm, I'm sure people have kind of seen that used before, but the whole process of this is you, you start by recognizing how you have received this gift of life. And then you recognize how the people you love around you have received this gift of life. And then you recognize how the people you hate also have the same gift of life. And then you recognize that that same gift of life that makes you possible is actually within everything. So this is all just about seeing that there's a transcendent source of, of existence. And, you know, there's a lot of classical metaphysics that goes into that. And, and I think that's important. Um, but at the end of this, it's, you know, there's, there's mystery to the world that we live in. Um, you are not the, the ongoing source of, of any of this. Um, and when you can put yourself in your proper place, you know, have a proper sense of proportion to your life, it makes interacting with all of these pieces easier. And you could even read Genesis 3 as a failure to do this of human beings not taking their proper place within the world. Okay, so you start with the gift. There's a givenness, and then givenness moves to goodness because it could all be a gift, but what if it's bad? What if it doesn't have value? Which means you don't have any value either. And so now we have to ask the character question. Um, and if my life then does have value, then these other things that share the exact same gift have value. Um, and, and a lot of this can be found just like Genesis 1 and 2. I know it's almost cliche to do that, but, uh, you know, Genesis 1 and 2 primarily portrays that uh, creation is a result of creator, but then the creation is all made up of dust and breath, mm -hmm. right? And, and that also has something to say about how, you, you know, you need both. And Again, 19th century Christianity is known for the sort of esoteric soulness, almost this platonic view of, of the human person and, you know, nope, dust and breath. I think the, the, Jewish, the Jewish people got that one right. Um, but what's interesting in Genesis 1 is the same breath of life that humans have, you know, described earlier in, in that Genesis 1 poem is then said to be with all of the living things later in the Genesis 1 poem. So there's this shared breath. And so is that, is that gift now a reflection of the value all of those things have? If, uh, let me just think of a, okay. So if, if the sheep down the road does not have value, but it's made up of the same gift and the same breath, then you don't have value either. So we need to make a decision there. I'm going to lean toward, nope, I think that there is value. There's an inherent value to everything. Uh, you know, the, there's this gift that is good. And now the biblical theological part is in all, it's all good. And it's constantly affirmed even until the last chapters of the, the entire biblical narrative. Um, and so now do we live in a way that not only reflects the givenness, but also the goodness. Um, I use the example of how, and, and this is not my idea. This is something I've seen written about a, a lot is the incarnation is one of the, the primary affirmations of the physical world. If a transcendent God becomes flesh, that must mean that there's some value in doing so. Um, but then this starts getting into the kind of responsibility we have. So are we destroying a gift? And are we destroying goodness? Um, and that can be with how you treat yourself. And, you know, so not to get into like the self-help 
world or, or even like the self-care world. But when if you are being destructive to yourself, that is a, a poor use of the gift and that is a poor use of goodness. Um, but then obviously that keeps going to other people, to enemies, to strangers on the other side of the world. But then can we take that even to, um, you know, the grass or, you know, Jesus brings up the lilies of the field. And I don't think that's just a quaint metaphor. I think he's actually causing us to consider that the lilies of the field are part of this shared gift and shared goodness, right? Um, so that's those are kind of foundational ingredients. And then you have um, that creation is ongoing. Um, and this, again, is within Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but you see this utilized throughout the biblical narrative as well that creation is endowed with the ability to generate. And you could even just use like multiply and be fruitful. That's okay. That's the same kind of thing. Um, or, you know, it's summer. Uh, it, do you cut your grass? If you cut your grass, you're watching the, the generative ability of creation unfold before your eyes. It's constantly moving. And this is where this brings up, so what's the human role? And we could have debates on whether or not uh, sentient beings are different uh, with human consciousness and qualia compared to creatures and plants. Could have that debate, but I would, I would say most philosophers over time have agreed that, yes, human beings have a different kind of construct that they're living according to. So what's our role? And I think the biblical narrative actually names that for us which is to guide and to care for. And you, and you brought this up. Ellen Davis has a great book um, um, where she unpacks those lines from Genesis of how we've used, uh, we've used these commands from God as a way to dominate the earth mm -hmm. as yeah. opposed to guide for and care for it. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have this shared responsibility. And I think it's helpful to look at um, the human role almost as like a good parent and and not not just a parent, a good parent, mm. uh, which is we have to help this thing move and it's still its own and it's going to continue to grow to be its own. But can we be co-authors, co-participants, co-collaborators with God in the direction that this thing's going to go? Um, and I think especially the uh, the demands of Torah actually bring this up in explicitly with creation of you need to take care of the land and you need to let a fruit tree sit for three years before you harvest from it. Like these are literal commands within the Torah. And that seems to be because the way that human beings are going to interact with this whole thing is going to determine how it's going to go. Um, and one of the questions I like posing when I talk about this is like, imagine a world without humans the the world's going to continue to exist indefinitely it'll be chaotic um and and that's where one of the images of genesis 1 is god bringing order out of chaos but it would keep going and so humans are brought into that order out of chaos to help order the thing but we also have the risk that we could actually keep it from keep going too and so how are we going to use that power yeah, it um, seems pretty chaotic. <laughs> I mean, and and just like look at the microcosm of a garden. If no human interacts with a garden, it's still going to produce fruit and it's still yeah. going to produce a lot of stuff. But 
uh, it's going to be absolutely chaotic. If you, if you've ever let a garden go for a year or two, you see what happens, but at the same time, a plant is able to produce more efficiently at the hands of a proper gardener. Mm-hmm. And so what, what kind of gardeners of creation are we going to be? Yeah. Um, and then that leads to the last one, which is really just an ingredient, uh, talking about teleology and I already mentioned Gregory of Nyssa that's kind of where this comes from um, but whether you're looking at Genesis or Isaiah or Revelation the the end goal always the telos is always all things restored um, all of creation um, and so do we look at our faith as an ethical means to accomplish that I mean do we even look at the, the work of Jesus as a means toward the restoration of all things. Um, and this is where I think, you know, our preaching could be better. Mm-hmm. When, when we talk about Easter, when we talk about resurrection, when we talk about crucifixion, do we have everything in mind with that? Um, and I, the, the way that we talk about salvation even, and I see this happening within Christianity in general, of people taking a more cosmic view of salvation. But do we, do we believe that whatever work Jesus is doing, whatever work God is doing in the world is going to ultimately involve, you know, blades of grass in, in creatures and you too, all mm-hmm. of it. So do we, do we have this all things kind of view um, when, when we're, when we're talking about what we believe, but also what we're going to do. And that's where if we could if we could maybe connect these two pieces of um and, and and what I mean by salvation is you know if you think about like how the book of Isaiah talks about salvation, uh salvation is this all-encompassing thing. It's one of those all or nothing kind of things. And it in, in, involves material stuff. So when when Israel, the the covenantal community is liberated from exile. That's not just, you know, they're going to heaven when they die one day. That's, well, their economy is going to be healed and they're going to be safe. And there's this correlation between salvation and shalom in the Hebrew language that, you know, I don't hear a lot. Not that I'm in every church all the time, but I don't hear a lot from pulpit. Um, so when I'm using that word, you know, in, in, your, in their shalom, you'll find your shalom. Just go ahead and substitute, and there's your their salvation. You'll find your salvation. It's it's this whole thing, and one of the words we use uh, where I'm from comes from the uh, agrarian tradition is health, and it's this idea that health has to be the health of everything. So if you have unhealthy soil, well, eventually that's going to trace its way back to you. Um, if you have unhealthy relationships or unhealthy marriages in your community, eventually that will trace its way back to you. And similar to how uh, Dr. King talks about justice, you know, a threat to justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Well, a threat to health or shalom or salvation anywhere is, is a threat to it everywhere. So th- those ingredients kind of come together for me as if that can be the way we view this, that should imply certain ethical constraints that we have to live by. The real question at the end of all of that, though, is will we actually do it and how do we do it? Because that's yeah. that's still ambiguous, too. Well, that 
so that's a really good transition before we, I mean, before we even get close to closing this conversation, um, I'd love to kind of talk about some practical steps. I mean, so let's suppose, you know, um, someone that's listening is, has bought into these big topics of ecological entanglement. Um, I, I love the section where you start talking about the small places where we are. Um, I remember, uh, I I can't remember who, but I remember uh, someone talking about us missionally thinking about our 10 square feet, you know, which is like, you're all, as you're walking, you're kind of always, maybe that goes back to the original meaning of the word environment, right? Just the small place right around us. It's like, we're always kind of aware of that. Yeah. So, so what are, what are some of the practical steps that someone might take um, to begin uh, to cultivate their awareness of this entanglement with creation and ecology and things like that? Yeah. The, the idea that you're, you're talking about here um, again, where, the tradition I come from, we call this place economy. Mm. Um, and it's, it's kind of tongue in cheek to local economy, uh, but it has some, some minor differences that I think are important. Um, and I think the first, we, you're, you're talking about this idea of the 10 square feet. I, I really like that. Um, one of the questions to ask is, is do you belong where you are? Mm. And is there this belonging? And uh, often I'll pair this conversation with also the idea of community in place. Mm -hmm. And there are certain things that are required in order to achieve belonging. But if we want to go back to that sociological phenomenon, you know, we have more opportunity, technology, convenience, comfort, whatever, luxury than than most of, of history. But if you look, I think 99% of human beings throughout history, I wouldn't want their life. I wouldn't want the world they lived in, but I think they might've had the one thing that we don't have and that's to belong. And I really think you see this in the church. Yeah. You see this just socially and culturally that we are trying to fill this void of belonging and we just keep chasing after different ways to do this. And like I said earlier, the rural communities have it and that's not romantic. Like I've lived in a rural community for a while now, small town gossip is a real thing. And that comes from, because we know each other. And so we talk about each other. Um, but that kind of knowledge, uh, that kind of belonging, that kind of care to take responsibility for a place indefinitely, that's probably the place you got to start. And here's the deal. The church literally has this built in. It's the local church. We have a built in proximity and permanence and history and vision for local places. We already have it. There's no other sociological organization that has the propensity that the church has, especially when it comes to these ideas of, of, of ecology. Um, so that belonging, that what we call place economy, um, that's a huge part of it. I, I'll just uh, kind of plug, like, read the chapter. Um, I spend a lot of time diving into that. And um, so that's that's one of them. 
the other the other huge thing here is food mm-hmm. uh and almost to to be popularly cliche um is to emphasize the importance of food but uh if if you want like the most practical dimension someone can start with it's how do you eat and what kind of questions do you ask about what you eat um and do you see that you know can you make a connection that what you eat might also be involved with god's salvation you know do we take it that far mm-hmm. and i love the picture that uh in the gospel of luke the road to emmaus you know and the the disciples don't recognize Jesus until he breaks bread. Yeah. And it's like the power of sitting at the table is the power of resurrection in some ways, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, but we we do need to ask more questions about um how we eat. I think one of the lines I used, which I it might be kind of mean, but you know, they will know we are Christians by our love. And I'll go, yeah, but they'll know we are Christians by how we eat. Um and and I like throwing that picture out just to get us to consider like, oh, this this might just be more than a daily activity I do so I'm not hungry anymore. It's not just an article of international trade. This is actually something that deals with these four ingredients we're talking about. And I do think that the Bible is a food book. Um, again, Ellen Davis, her, her work was some of the first that I had read that really pointed that out. But, um, you know, from the dietary laws, which is obvious, but um, is way deeper than what we consider uh, the dietary laws to be about. It's, it's about how you eat and how that reflects interdependence and shalom and entanglement and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody's going to eat. It's You're going to do it. Um, I like what Wendell Berry says of we are all farmers by proxy mm-hmm. and there's no such thing as a post-agricultural world. Um, but I and again, I have read this somewhere else. This was probably decades ago. Of there is no conflict between a good meal and a better world, and I think that should, like, that should just be in churches somewhere, you know. And again, like, think about fellowship hour potlucks. Churches have been immersed in food for a long time, but I think that's huge. Um, But then the real, the real issue of like, what do churches do? And, and to that one, I'm going to be really honest and say, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't seen anything, especially like something that can be franchised out to all the churches. And, you know, I, I've heard you guys talk about like the silver bullet approach to church change. And it's like, yeah, that's not going to happen with this either. Um, I can say that, you know, on the, to, to poke at the more conservative side, if that even makes sense. Um, is that you have to do something and it matters, but to kind of poke at the more liberal progressive side is it's going to be more than recycling. It's going to be more than the cups. It it has to change the very fabric of a community. Um, and I think that's the furthest you're going to be able to impact. I tend to be an idealist and probably five to eight years ago, I had this real big existential crisis where I kind of came to the conclusion like, oh, I, I'm not actually going to change the world. I, I can't do it. Um, and I had spent some time um, in Central America um, and we're just looking at all of these issues with imperialism and empire and capitalism and 
Yeah. And you get done with something like that and you're like, I will never fix this. Like the same problems through history are continuing to repeat. So what can I do? And that's where I kind of land with my perspective is I can care for the small place where I am. Um, And sometimes I get criticized for being in a rural community, you know, like small pond, you gave up, went out to the middle of nowhere. And I kind of look at it as the opposite of um, there's a lot of really good and hard work to be done out here. And if the only thing I do at the end of my life is help one very small rural community, I think that's worth it. Um, but I kind of offer a list of questions in the chapter, um, that I think are going to do a better job than I can right now. But the, the part that I would emphasize is that whatever you decide to do, it's going to be really hard. Um, and the best way to start is to just acknowledge your compromises, um, almost like a, like an act of confession of, so here's how we're failing. And now maybe we can see one, one small step. Um, at our church, we try, we try to do some of this stuff. Um, so we, we have a farm that we do some stuff with. It's, it's not impactful by any means. We're not like making a bunch of money on it. It's not a great business model, but we, so we have a farm, we have a market and we have a kitchen. So like on Sundays, there's a restaurant serving food. Well, we try to get some of the stuff from our land into that kitchen or we have a market where we've really tried to find as many people within walking distance. And, we, and that's where we're kind of going like the constraint of place um, farmers or producers and go, can we just sell your stuff for you here in one place where we're all there already gathering people. Um, and then can we all be trying to use that stuff as well? Um, and then the kitchen is, you know, we're, we're trying to do good, good food, we're trying to do food well, but we're mostly trying to get people to eat in a way that makes sense and to eat with each other. Um, so those are, those are ways that we have tried to do stuff, but I'll, I'll tell you, it's not successful. Um, it's not glamorous at all. It's really just this morning. We had a huge storm last night and, uh, our, our, we keep sheep and our sheep pen had flooded. And so I had to walk through, uh, manure soaked water, just to get them out to pasture this morning, you know, go to a, a church planting conference and sell that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But at, at the end of the day, it's, does, does this do something that, that not only creates this positive effect with things like food, things like creation, but does it change me too? You know, what does it do to me when I have to, when I have to go out in, in, yeah pull weeds around a berry bush just to make sure that it produces some sort of crop this year. Is that good church work? Um, One of the things that's been inspiring for me is um, the, the monastic tradition and the Benedictine model of work and pray. And I wonder, I wonder if churches should see themselves more as monasteries in ways like that of it, you know, you're still gathering people for prayer. That's still happening in monasteries, but um, nobody's checking attendance. Mm-hmm. Nobody's checking these common metrics. It's what kind of world are you creating by your presence there? Yeah. And at the end of the day, I mean, is that is that a better model for the church going forward? 
I don't know. It's it's not sexy at all. Yeah. But. Well, I mean, I think what you asked the question, is that church, you know, is, is a sheep pen and manure and taking them out to pasture is that church? I, I, I mean, I would answer yes. I would answer it depends on the metric, right? And so if our met, if our metrics of success, quote, I'm using air quotes here, are, you know, profit and you know that kind of stuff then then it's not then it's not as successful but if the metric is we got our community around tables eating food and being you know in community together it was incredibly successful i mean you know and so you know i would i I just want to applaud you know what you guys are doing in your in your small context um placemaking in the way that you are um well tyler hey we we really appreciate this conversation and appreciate you you and it's been fantastic um and and the chapter is so good and i do want to i want to pitch that people go get the book if not anything to read your chapter and and kind of really appreciate that probe some of these um conversations and i i I mentioned at the top end that they can they can find you at tylerkleeberger.com and then you're uh your host of the podcast becoming human Mm -hmm. and co-host of the bible archives so go look up those podcasts where better podcasts are sold and um Uh, and i'll add to that yeah I am very open to continuing this conversation. So if somebody is listening, like, oh, that sounds interesting. Um, like just literally on that website, you can contact me and I would love, okay. to, love awesome. to see what kind of conversations can unfold. That's awesome. Well, blessings to you, Tyler, and uh, to you too, Rich. And thanks for thanks for joining us for a little bit of time on this Red Skies conversation until, until the next conversation that we have. See you guys later. Thank you. Thank you for joining this episode of Red Skies, the podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by Movement Leaders Collective and 100 Movements Publishing in partnership with our friends at Missio Alliance. You can join the conversation at movementleaderscollective.com and connect with us at Red Skies at redskiesfuture.com. And as well, pick up your copy of Red Skies 10 Essential Conversations for Our Future as the Church on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other places that fine books are sold. Be sure to like this podcast and share it with others. And we look forward to continued conversations on our future as the church.